This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. For anyone that works in medicine, you know that culture and habits are hard to change. So what was it like for a seasoned and expert intensivist and leader, Dr. Peter Murphy, to suddenly hear this new concept of awake and walking ICUs? I'm excited to have him tell you all about it. Sounds Hi, good. Dr. Murphy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you, Kaylee. It's my pleasure. I am uh, Peter Murphy. I'm an intensivist uh, approaching now 50 years in practice. I'm also uh, assistant dean and chief and professor of medicine at California North State University College of Medicine. Well, I'm honored to have you on the podcast. You have so much to offer the critical care community, almost 50 years of experience. That is unfathomable. So you are definitely an expert in the field. And tell us what has, as far as delirium, sedation, mobility, what has been your career up until recently in regards to those practices? Well, Kaylee, I'll tell you, I am absolutely burdened when I look back at my career because at least 30 to 35 years of that practice, I practiced exactly like everyone else in the field. And sadly, uh, like the majority of people are, are practicing today. And by that, I mean, I basically had a patient come into the ICU. Uh, we had this idea that uh, we had to absolutely keep them comfortable. And that involved uh, absolute sedation. And it's kind of if they were fighting the ventilator or sort of were moving, uh, that was sort of our indication that we had not given them enough sedation. And the immediate knee-jerk response was to uh, more sedation. Now, I'll tell you, uh, for the first uh, sort of 35 years of my life, my professional life, that seemed to me like it was working very well. And in fact, when I saw a patient uh, leaving my ICU uh, on a gurney rather than a body bag, I, I thought, well, this is a real success. I've saved someone's life. And I essentially had no follow-up or essentially no feedback from uh, the majority of patients or for that matter, caregivers later on. And th there was no mechanism essentially for ICU doctors to get any kind of feedback. And particularly with the work of Dr. Wes Eli and others, uh, I became uh, you know, familiar with this uh, post-ICU syndrome 
And as I began to read uh, the literature, noting that, you know, 60 to 80 percent of my successes, like the ICU uh, survivors, were having extraordinarily challenged life with anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD, cognitive impairment, uh, physical deconditioning, and in fact, uh, far from a successful outcome, uh, I, I was actually shocked uh, by really uh, what we were doing. And I, I began to ask myself, is there a better way of doing this? And I, I was sort of slowly beginning to feel uh, that there is a, a better way, uh, but I hadn't sort of crystallized that in my mind. And I think, as I've told you, I'm a pretty active cyclist and I listen to podcasts a, a lot. And you will know the exact time, but your first uh, appearance on the ACC ACRAC podcast, and I love uh, Jed Walpole, who's the presenter there. He's just fabulous. And I'm listening to you. And I'm, first of all, initially thinking uh, this lady is crazy because, I mean, she's talking about, you know, having ICU patients in the ICU and not sedated, up walking. But it was exactly uh, kind of the stimulus that I needed to, as I'm listening to you, I could actually understand that you can run an ICU like this. And that, in fact, you're talking about nurses having a lot less work to do because they're now mobilizing patients in the first 24 hours, not after they've gained, you know, uh, 12 liters of fluid and they're two weeks lying around in bed. So that was a sort of a shocking uh, eye-opening to me. And that was really my stimulus that, you know, not alone can we do a better job, but we miss, we must do a better job. And at the same time, I was sort of becoming aware of uh, sort of outcome data uh, for American medicine. Uh, in the uh, British Medical Journal in uh, May of 2016, uh, Martin McCurry, uh, who is one of the docs from Johns Hopkins and a colleague, uh, published uh, that the third leading cause of death is actually medical errors. And that was actually sort of shocking to me. And then on top of that, he put a figure uh, to this, which is basically we're losing about 250,000 patients a year from medical errors. Uh, that's the equivalent of sort of two large airliners crashing a day. And frankly, there is almost no awareness. And I've done some surveys kind of in preparation for our little discussion here with many of my colleagues, and almost no one is aware of that. And because of that lack of uh, awareness, uh, no one is doing anything about it. And, um, you know, uh, we have two major problems, as I see it, in medicine. One is uh, we, we are very slow uh, to accept kind of new data. And, you know, I always go back 
to my friend, Dr. Simmelweis in uh, Budapest in the 1840s, when he dramatically showed that uh, hand washing would dramatically cut death in women with peripheral fever. Uh, he was immediately booted out of Budapest to Vienna because he was crazy. And in fact, uh, Koch of Koch's postulates, who was one of our absolute heroes in TB, uh, also thought he was crazy. And in fact, Dr. Simmelweis ended up his days in a mental asylum being essentially uh, tied down and died of cellulitis, age 47. And you think, well, we can think, well, that, that's the old days. Well, uh, Barry Marshall in, uh, in uh, uh, Australia in the early 80s, he was convinced that, in fact, peptic ulcer disease was uh, due to a bacterial infection. And, of course, all the smart doctors like myself knew it was actually due to acid and stress. And, in fact, when I was an intern in a large university hospital, we do five or six spike vagotomies in pyloroplasties uh, every week to cut the acid and, and, and prevent ulcers. He got so much pushback that he drank a beaker of uh, H. pylori, had himself gastroscoped four times, showed that he got an ulcer, and in 2006, he got the Nobel Prize. But frankly, I mean, all he got was pushback and, uh, you know, a, a lot of hesitancy. Uh, Forsman in the uh, like early 30s in Germany, uh, he put a catheter into his vein in the arm, showed it could go into the heart. And immediately people found out about this. They kicked him out of cardiovascular disease. He had to go and become a urologist. And then in, 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 in about 1980, he won the Nobel Prize for cardiac catheterization. Uh, in the early 30s, 1930s, there was actually some equipoise about whether paralytics caused analgesia. And in fact, it was relatively common uh, in the 1930s to do surgery with paralytics alone. Now, I don't even want to contemplate what that was like, but uh, this uh, Dr. Smith out of Utah decided, you know, we better confirm this, that this really is true. And so he had three of his colleagues give him increasing doses of curare. And after about 32 minutes, and I'm shocked at 30, 32 minutes, but after 32 minutes, they were able to notice that this guy is not breathing. They intubated him. And then it took four hours before they could extubate. He published an article in anesthesiology in January 1947 saying, you know, curare has no uh, analgesic effects. And he pretty much stopped uh, that practice there and then. But what all these things I think show to you is that there is an incredible a sort of a resistance to, you know, changing the status quo. And uh, if we're dealing with the kind of numbers that I talked about earlier, deaths and injuries are even dramatically more profound. We may have up to, you know, four and a half to five million people, according to up to date, who survived the ICU experience. And we probably have a 60 to 70 percent of those uh, who are have anxiety, depression, PTSD, cognitive impairment, physical deconditioning, 
And that is almost getting zero attention. So to me, uh, that requires us to say, guys, you know, uh, we're not doing the job that I think all of us as physicians and clinicians think we're doing. And certainly we're not doing the job uh, that we should be doing. Now, the stuff that you refer to with the medical errors, this harm, even the death from inappropriate sedation practices were not included in that. That's not considered medical error. Yes. I mean, we're not accurately measuring this. Yeah. Uh, In fact, if you look at up to date, they actually would suggest that the deaths may actually be twice 250. Uh, Sydney Wolf, about uh, 25 years ago, maybe 20, and the Institute of Medicine said at that time that we were causing 100,000 deaths. And he got incredible uh, pushback. But, you know, no one ever disproved any of the things he said. And I suspect that up to date, it is actually uh, much more uh, likely to be correct. And in fact, we may be resulting in, in a half a million deaths. Now, the other thing that is out there is that there is an incredible lack of, of, of sort of uh, utilization uh, of using the best practices we know today uh, for optimizing outcome. In fact, in critical care medicine in October 2008, uh, they went to eight university hospitals in Germany. And I love it was Germany because we think of the Germans, you know, as being kind of compliant and obsessive compulsive. And uh, uh, like as an Irishman, I can say I went to Ireland. Hey, they don't follow anything. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they went and they asked these intensivists how often are you employ, uh, using or employing all the good practices we know? And they essentially said, oh, oh, we do that most of the time, like 95, you know, pretty much all the time. Well, sadly, uh, it was less than 30%. So, you know, even back then, and we're talking about head of bed and lung volume inhalation and DBT prophylaxis, all of the things that we know today uh, would make a difference. Now, let me tell you, that's not just the Germans that are doing that. Um, We have known uh, for probably now close to 20 years, maybe longer, that uh, lung protective ventilation is dramatically effective in ARDS, uh, probably 16 to 20 percent mortality benefit. We have known that proning from the uh, Proceva study in 2013 is also incredibly effective. Uh, you know, th- th- this is absolutely, ex- if you were to go to any conference, that wouldn't even be discussion on, on do these things work. Right. The problem is that, uh, first of all, and, and there's two nice studies looking at this, and one was in JAMA 2016, volume 315, and another was in CHESS uh, 2021, volume 160, where they looked at practices in the US. And what they basically found is that only about 60% of the patients who have actually ARDS by the Berlin definition are actually diagnosed with that, are given that title. And then of that 60%, only, uh, only about half of those are actually given lung protective ventilation. 
So if you were to look at the big figure, you're saying almost half are not recognized and a little more than half are giving the treatment. So if you were to look at all the ARDS patients, probably only about 40% are getting treatment that we know today is life-saving. And the figures are even, even worse for uh, proning. I mean, proning is looked on now as being uh, very difficult, very challenging. Obviously, with COVID, a lot more places did proning. But I work in an electronic ICU where I monitor about uh, uh, 16, 18 hospitals. And most of those smaller hospitals don't do proning. So, you know, even today, where we know these incredible uh, life-saving interventions are, are out there, uh, you know, we, 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 we're just not, not incorporating those practice. Now, you started off with, uh, with delirium, and delirium is incredibly important, uh, you know, both in the acute management of the patient, and I'll talk a little later about the dramatic long-term outcomes, but, you know, we know, and in fact, from Wes, Eli, and others, and many of your podcasts, we know exactly what to do uh, to reduce and prevent uh, delirium. But it's it's almost universally uh, not being done. Uh, I think I told you uh, when I became a kind of a disciple of yours, I, I wanted to see you know, is there, is this a wake and uh, walking ICU? Like, is this a myth or is this really something that's out there? You and emailed I, me right I, away and you said, hi, I just heard your podcast. I have my bags packed. Where are you? Yes. <laughs> ready to jump on a plane the next day. <laughs> it was amazing how receptive you were to that information, even though it defied everything you'd ever experienced or mostly believed. Well, that, that is absolutely true. But you know, my mind through Dr. Eli and others had been absolutely uh, kind of changed that, you know, uh, at best, I could say we were doing a fair job. And I didn't actually realize how bad a job we were doing when it came to, uh, you know, the anxiety, depression, the cognitive impairment. And I, I was just shocked by that. and. I realized that, you know, I had some uh, kind of payback to do here for relatively all the damage that I had done in, in, in the prior 20 years, 30 years. And I needed to become a little bit of a disciple here to really change things. And we actually have done that significantly with our 30 to 40 man critical care group. And we've certainly done it uh, around the hospitals. And with the introduction of your program, the Awaken Walking program, we have seen a 30% uh, reduction in delirium, a dramatic improvement. I mean, uh, we used to have pictures in the past of people walking on a ventilator, we put that right beside the picture of the unicorn because we almost never saw it. I, I mean, now, you know, it's a much more common event and very much more doable. And when you look at uh, the impact, and we talk a little bit, a few minutes about the impact of delirium uh, on long-term mortality and all, 
I mean, this is drastic. This, this, this is incredible. Uh, we had data from our hospital that uh, said our length of stay in the ICU was 5.7 days. And uh, we said, this is crazy. This, is, this, is, this doesn't reflect our patients. So uh, we just couldn't get, you know, good data. So I you said, you guys, had cardiovascular patients mixed in there, right? Post-op heart. We, 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 we had some and we had occasional trauma and some others. But uh, we said, guys, we're going to look at 100 patients. And we're not going to include, say, uh, cardiovascular surgery patients because they really have their own way of doing things. And we're not going to include some thoracic surgery because they, uh, you know, have, again, their own way. So we picked the routine uh, med-surge patients, the post-op, the sepsis, the drug overdoses, the pneumonia, you name it. And in the process of collecting uh, 100 patients, I actually collected 108 patients. This was prospectively, uh, and you know we couldn't publish this because this was, you know, this was this was not random. This was obviously we're not going to put in the cardiovascular patients. So we, we decided, okay, these are uh, 108 of our routine patients. The basic length of ICU stay it was supposed to be 5.7 days. If we included one of those 108 that stayed 24 days, our length of stay was 1.6 days. If we excluded that patient, it was 1.45 days. So, you know, a, a dramatic reduction, but we did all the things. I mean, the minute the patient would uh, come up from the emergency room uh, through our ICU uh, door, uh, the immediate thing was, first of all, stop the propofol. I mean, I, I had a gentleman last night, I, I just admitted uh, before I finished work at seven o'clock, uh, he's being uh, chased by our men in blue. He had a fistful of pills in his hand. He swallowed them all, I got him up to the ICU. He was intubated for agitation. Uh, I was leaving at seven, but from about 4.30 to seven, I stopped everything and I'm trying to extubate him, but he wasn't really awake enough. But this morning, I come in totally awake. He's transferred out of the ICU this morning. I had a gentleman two days ago who came in, cardiac arrest in his, in his, in his, uh, in, in the gym, uh, where he's working out. He came in and of course he's on hypothermia and he's sedated. And I'm talking to the family. I said, guys, you know, we're going to dramatically cut down sedation. Uh, he's in about 24 hours. He's not completed his hypothermia yet, but we were only going to 36. So I wasn't worried about the temperature being uncomfortable. By uh, mid-afternoon, he's awake and talking to me. By 10 to 7 last night, he was extubated. Now, in a previous life, we would kind of have left that guy intubated to rest and just because that was practice. So uh, this is how uh, we were able to get uh, these dramatic reductions. Incredible, incredible work. And I didn't even go on site with your team. This is through webinars. Yeah. How, um, well, first of all, you had your bags packed. You yes. went to LDS Hospital to that Awaken Walking ICU. What was your experience? You just heard about this on the podcast. You were hopeful and you went. And what was your, what were your immediate impressions walking well, through those halls? I, I, I assumed that you were talking 
like I think about Ireland when I was a kid, I think of like those long, warm summers and the great times. And I'm thinking, well, you, you're describing, you know, maybe 10 percent of your patients that possibly could do this. And I wasn't totally convinced. The first thing that uh, surprised me is that the people there were kind of uh, almost like, what's my problem? Why am I not believing that this is possible? And this is what we've been doing all the time, I think, for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, so we, this is the only way we know how to do business. And then I go up to the ICU and I see no sedative infusions going. I, I see guys either walking or on ventilators with their iPads. And I mean, it was simply shocking, but at the same time, magnificently encouraging because I could see uh, that, listen, what they're doing here, this can be done anywhere. This is not magic. This is actually, you know, and I absolutely know that walking a, a patient, uh, you know, in the first or second day is a hell of a lot easier than as we've talked about, you know, the deconditioning and the muscle wasting of sepsis, pneumonia, a week on the ventilator. I mean, that is disabling. And so to see these patients, uh, you know, who are, are up and walking and uh, not needing an army of people, maybe needing a therapist on one side and a nurse on the other side, and that's pretty much it. It, it was, I mean, it was actually shocking because I, I, I really, you know, I really wasn't sure this could be done. But but it now is one I'm of those things where you maybe have to see it to believe it. I mean, yes. you, thank goodness you were open minded. That's not always the case. I remember being really humbled because you're reaching out to me with over 45 years of experience. Mm -hmm. To me, as a nurse practitioner who was just hiding in her closet with a microphone <laughs> <laughs> to say, teach me. Show me. Yes. I, well, I, you that know, was amazing. Uh, let me just tell you why I think uh, that it is so important. Uh, we look at it as an article from JAMA in 2010 by Wunsch, uh, who basically talks about 60 to 80 percent of the people in the ICU being delirious. Uh, there's an article in Lancet 2011 by uh, Latroniasco, 2011, volume 10, where he says 60 to 80 percent of the people are uh, physically impaired and 50 to 70 percent of the people are neurologically impaired. I mean, this is profound injury. We look at uh, an article from the Heritage in New England Journal and Needham in Critical Care Medicine saying that, you know, muscle weakness almost occurs in everyone in the ICU. But the disturbing thing is that 60% have significant weakness uh, a year out. I mean, this, this is incredible. We have an article in the Lancet uh, by Schweikert in 2009, noting that in, he looked at a group of patients who were in kind of the mobility intervention group and the control, control group. 59% of the mobility group were functional uh, post-discharge, 35% uh, in the control group. That's almost double. I mean, that that is absolutely shocking. And then still, we have an with, that, with that Schweiker trial, that was a lower 
dose of mobility than what you saw in the awaken walking ICU. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. More oh, sedation, less mobility. Um, yes. Uh, the timing of the mobility was pro was later. So even, is, still, I mean, even yeah. it still made a difference. It, it, it's dramatically different. And then we look at an, an article from Wes Eli in JAMA in April 2004 and Piscani in the American Journal. And they're basically saying that a delirium is a predictor of mortality with a threefold increase in mortality at six months. And every day of delirium is associated with a 10% increase in mortality. I mean, that is, uh, that is, that is fantastic. Uh, then there's an article in, in New England Journal in 2013 looking at cognitive impairment. 25% of patients discharged from the ICU at 12 months had mild Alzheimer's equivalent. 33% had moderate. So guys, we're talking here, over 50% of the patients have long-term impairment. Now, I was real happy that I was saving a life when the patients were leaving on a gurney. But my real question is, uh, was I saving a life uh, that was, you know, worthy of being lived. And you and I have talked about uh, Wes Eli's book, and I think it should be required reading for everyone who is going to go into critical care because it puts a, a, a face on the damage that we're doing. And I remember so many of the cases in that book, but the one that I remember specifically is he had the nuclear scientist who was all upset about how poorly she was doing and knowing Wes, uh, he was going to go in and make her feel so good that in fact they did her IQ and she had a, an IQ of something like 135 or 140 and she was devastated. It used to be 160. You know, and so I think that uh, he puts a face on the damage uh, that we are doing. And the real problem is the damage that we're doing is almost absolutely unnecessary. I would say unnecessary, probably uh, at the 80 or 90 percent level. Now, maybe higher than that. I mean, frankly, it, it should be a minuscule fraction of uh, these uh, patients that should be getting sedated. And in fact, as a result of your training, so yesterday morning, or about this time yesterday, when my gentleman from the gym with the cardiac arrest is waking up, I, I, I had his wife and his two kids there. And I said, every five minutes, you tell him, he collapsed in the gym, he's in the ICU, he got a tube down his throat, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, if I was to wake up in the ICU and a tube down my throat and not know what the hell is going on, there aren't restraints strong enough to keep me down. Yeah. And so literally uh, all this guy needed was constant. And in fact, when I was leaving last night, I said to his son, you know, I, and the daughter, I said, I would like one of you to sit by his bed all night. You know, yeah. this, oh, perfect. You know, so I, I mean, and this way, you know, the, the doc who's not familiar is not going to call and say, Mr. So-and-so is agitated when you start the propofol. And of course, uh, you know, he ended up getting extubated in the evening anyway. But, you know, we can change uh, these practices. And, and I think, uh, 
you know, we have this incredible privilege uh, of doing what we do. And I always tell my students, you know, you could be, uh, you know, selling cars, selling houses, or you will identify with this uh, spelling, uh, selling expensive Jimmy shoes on the shoes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I said there are a hundred places to buy a car, buy a house, buy a purse. But I said, when you're dealing with someone's spouse, uh, someone's kid, you get 110% of their attention and you get the privilege of being in the center of that uh, arena. And if you're not able to appreciate how privileged that is, I always say it's like buying a bottle of very good wine and putting it on your chin and drinking it. Well, yes, you did drink it, but you missed about 98% of the experience. And I think if you're doing ICU care and not understanding the privilege that we have uh, to be participating, and this is exactly, I mean, people ask me, uh, you know, I should be retired 10 years ago, why I'm doing this. And I say, I love it. You know, and I get so much satisfaction. And now you have imposed uh, this burden on me to try and correct all the damage that I did for the first 30 years to make sure that anyone who will listen to me uh, knows about this. Yeah, you said that right away. You said, um, I'm nearing retirement whenever that's going to be. But you said, this is a <laughs> legacy I have to leave. I have to change this before I leave. And I yeah. thought that was incredibly inspiring. Um, that sense of calling, like these podcast listeners, everyone can relate to that. I think anyone that's heard this and had this awakening can feel a sense of responsibility to do something about it. Throughout all of this delirium research, we've always talked about the problem. Yeah. It's been very evident, but we don't give enough tribute and enough attention to the solution. So here yes. you are going to this awakened walk and I see you seeing it in action. You're understanding the literature. It's coming to life. You were so motivated, inspired, and you came back to your system and you were ready to just turn it all around. How and was your enthusiasm received? Well, uh, I'll tell you, not with a universal acceptance by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I think uh, I mean, I look back at my dear friend, Mr. Semmelweis, Dr. Semmelweis and Dr. Marshall and all. Listen, when you are essentially telling people that there's a dramatically better way of doing what they're doing, and particularly if they have been doing that like me for the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there's a little bit of an indictment going on. And I think you, 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 your initial reaction uh, is going to be, you know what, I, I am a superb doctor and I've done great work and I'm not so sure about this uh, new approach here. But, you know, you have to talk about what we're doing and you have to realistically talk about, you know, 70 percent of the patient's that we're sending out of our ICU are permanently injured. I mean, they are permanently injured with anxiety, depression, you know, PTSD, cognitive impairment. And you have had a hundred of them on your podcast. Uh, Wes has talked to them in his book. I mean, this is, this is undeniable. 
And, you know, I think it's like most things in life. I think if you're dealing with a, a, a sort of a thoughtful, reflective person, they're probably going to leave that conversation and maybe think a little bit about, is there something in what Dr. Murphy is saying? And why are we actually doing this? You know, you would never think of uh, sedating a patient with a tracheostomy. I mean, why do we sedate a patient uh, with an endotracheal tube? I mean, uh, no, you, there's you, that cultural myth that it's safer, oh. more comfortable, or that we do trach so that we can take off sedation. Never found it in the literature. Whoever yeah. started that that trend, um, they don't. Th- I don't think they realize how lethal that line of thinking would be for our patients. But you see, uh, Kelly, that is the problem because, like me, for you know, thirty years, most of the uh, clinicians have little or no feedback and they do not understand. And I mean, you have had uh, people on your podcast who said they were so scared of the ICU, they couldn't even bring themselves back to come and tell the nurses how bad the experience was. So, you know, we have very little mechanism to get uh, the feedback, but you know, you put me in touch with uh, Andrew Pierce writing his book, and I was a, a critical somewhat of the uh, SCCM, the Society of Critical Care of Medicine, who I, I did take a real leadership role in defining delirium. But really, I, I, I think uh, took a back step in uh, forcing uh, you know, a process to how we deal with this. But I was actually delighted about a month ago, they came out with about five or six recommendations, which are all essentially uh, a watered down recommendation of what I or you would really want. They say, you know, c- consider uh, decreasing uh, sedations. My, my, my recommendation would be stop all sedations on everyone unless the occasion of one or two patients or three or four that you have to give. I mean, I would say like everyone should be up walking except the people who actually are hematologically unstable and the people who actually can't. So and right away, I, not just at this sedate them and then deal with it later at some subjective, yeah. ambiguous time. That's yeah. what really that's what ICU liberation has been. Yes. Um, and, and I understand that every patient is different. You have to have guidelines that are adaptable, but you have to have the tools to critically think through each patient and understand what the norm should be so that you can identify the exceptions and deal with them. But right now, as our guidelines have been, they've been very ambiguous, which has just seemed to continue this culture. And, you know, perhaps I can understand the SCCM uh, saying that, you know, what they're fighting is so pervasive. I mean, the practice of ICU medicine today is to uh, sedate, keep them in bed, and essentially, uh, you know, do all of the wrong things. And so I, I, I think the SCCM is trying to get the thin end of the wedge in there. The problem, though, that I see is that while they're getting that thin end of the wedge in there, we may lose another half a million or a million people, and we may permanently injure another several million people. And, you know, that is not acceptable to me. And I've talked to you earlier about, I mean, I did a bronchoscopy this morning, 
and I talk to the patient about the one in 5,000 risk of dying, in every ICU essentially in this country, except an occasional one like we've talked about, people are routinely getting a treatment plan, which if they survive, will guarantee them 60 to 70% of the survivors will have permanent injury and no one talks to them at all and says, uh, you know, how are you with that? Or, you know, we actually have a treatment plan that where we can dramatically reduce all those risks. Uh, and in fact, the people who have been exposed to that treatment plan when given a choice want no sedation instead of sedation the majority of the time. But I don't know. had it both ways. Want to be awake. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I think if you and I were in the hospital, uh, I would absolutely unequivocally want uh, uh, to be given a chance to see what's this like and then maybe given a, a little push of fentanyl now and then if times were getting tough, but not knock me out with propofol or uh, benzodiazepines or whatever. And uh, I mean, that is the major challenge. Uh, that we have to do. I am hopeful that with the introduction of, of sort of artificial intelligence and the electronic medical record, we will be able to identify, you know, practice patterns that give us the best and short-term uh, better outcomes. And maybe, maybe that's what's going to drive us. I mean, if I were to go to an insurance company and say, listen, I can get most of your patients out of the ICU in under two days versus uh, five to six days, I suspect they'd be extraordinarily interested in having me come in and have a chat. Oh, the financial picture of that is just undeniable, but it's unknown to those financial decision makers. Yes, yes, it is. And uh, but, you know, I am encouraged with the uh, uh, with the SCCM uh, coming to where they are. And, you know, I am seeing a a bit more of the uh, reduced sedation in our EICU where we handle, you know, 14 hospitals. Maybe we're seeing probably uh, some less uh, use, but it's a battle. It is. And you've had more success with your personal IC that you've physically been at. Um, What has helped to bring that change? How have you gotten buy-in from the rest of the team, especially um, the nurses and respiratory therapists? Well, I think it's like you and uh, Wes Eli has said, uh, you know, uh, a picture in this case is worth about 10,000 words because when you were saying this thing uh, on the podcast on ACRAC, I said, well, yeah, maybe that's possible, but not really likely. When you go and see it, uh, I, I think you absolutely say, you know, absolutely this is possible. Why not do it? And I think it's the same now with uh, with uh, the nurses seeing, uh, you know, uh, patients walking. I mean, the initial response is if you were on a ventilator, you had to have a one or two set of infusions going. We don't even get that question anymore. And in one of our hospitals out in uh, Roseville, uh, a bunch of the nurses have said, we don't use set of infusions here. 
And that's the hospital where they have seen a 30% reduction in delirium. Amazing. You know, and so uh, it becomes uh, it becomes difficult to uh, argue against this. And all of the bad things that you kind of anticipated happening uh, haven't really happened. Such as, I mean, unplanned extubation? Well, uh, wait, wait, wait. Everyone, everyone talks about, uh, you know, well, that they're going to extubate themselves, like as if this was the end of the world. Well, <laughs> no. I'm going to tell you and probably the other doctors listening and nurses and nurse practitioners that I don't think we have very good mechanisms for identifying who is ready for extubation enough. You know, we have Martin Tobin's RSPI and a million other things. But I'll tell you, when I look back at my career, I have seen hundreds of patients extubate themselves uh, when I either was thinking about it or wasn't sure or whatever. And only a minuscule fraction of those required to be intubated. And in fact, Wes Eli in 2007 had essentially the same experience in a, you know, a published study where he said, yes, they had more extubations, but they, had, they did not have more reintubations. So I think what we're saying is there are a number of patients who are probably ready to be extubated. And that is a, a possible, to be honest, I, I have no perception at all that our incidence of extubation has gone up at all. But I mean, that's the thing that most people uh, think about. Uh, I've never heard anyone extubation, you know, post-extubation say, gee, that having the tube in there was terrible. You know, that it, it's just I've heard no difference from the way we used to practice five years ago. So. I don't think that there really is much different. I think there is the assumption that it's going to be chaotic and it's going to be World War III in every other patient's room. But in fact, it isn't. And the biggest thing that I think uh, people need to do is, is keep family involved. I mean, I was there yesterday when this guy was waking up after his cardiac arrest and he was barely able to flicker his eyes. And I'm telling him, hey, you collapsed in the gym. We had to put a tube in. Uh, you're doing really well. We're going to get the tube out. And someone has to be telling him that every five minutes. And the other choice is you snow him with propofol. But we know what that does. And I'm really concerned about the visitation restrictions that have persisted even after COVID. Um, we have not healed from that. And we're not practicing the ADF bundle um, and therefore not practicing evidence-based medicine if we are kicking family members out, they are, they're a part of the ICU team. We don't kick out RTs after seven o'clock at night. Why are we kicking out families? So thank you for telling families, asking families to stay at the bedside and then allowing them to. Most families want to. Most families are going to be an invaluable tool and make everything easier. But we have had a culture shift so far away from that. Um, so you're absolutely yes. right. Yeah. And stay tuned for some episodes. Very, very... Um, focused on the family involvement in the ICU because we need to hit that hard. And you know, what is so important and you get this from patients from families is, is, you know, the little weirdness and kinks that we have or that the patients like this or they like this music or they like such and such. And, you know, those are the things that are going to make the difference and make them feel uh, secure. Yep. So uh, families are absolutely essential. And I think the more we use them, the less we'll have to use pharmacology. 
But all this has come because you're going away from deep sedation. You're trying to rehumanize the ICU or humanize wherever you've been from your culture before. But when you do that, it makes sense to have families there. Absolutely. Um, And you know, uh, Dr. Eli has made the comment that sort of humanity is the antidote to burnout. And I think as you uh, get involved with the patient and their families, uh, you get to know them a little better. You get to know kind of the little quirks and idiosyncrasies and you feel uh, more connected to that family. And, you know, I, I, I think that without question, the COVID family, the COVID everything was horrible, but you know, uh, we have to get over that and we can absolutely correct uh, what we're doing. And the, my challenge right now is that I think we have the information uh, that can dramatically improve outcomes. But as with lung volume ventilation and proming, getting uh, clinicians to have that the absolute uh, you know, modus operandi, the thing they do every day is the real challenge. And I'm going through right now uh, our uh, corporate guidelines uh, in the ICU for management of our patients with uh, the local administration. And the corporate guidelines are absolutely excellent, but uh, we're not, uh, you know, applying those uh, as vigorously as I would like. And we are doing a lot better than most hospitals. So, uh, you know, uh, but, but I do think that if we were able to look at a kind of a reorchestration of the costs. And for example, if you could cut your ICU length of stay by two days, you could dramatically improve physical therapists, respiratory therapists, you know, their supply. So I think we could end up with substantial savings because, you know, the length of stay would be dramatically less. Absolutely. And there is evidence to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that evidence, when we show the incre- like a 30% reduction in healthcare costs from the ABCDF bundle, we have to remember that that was on a spectrum. That was not the full awake and walking approach, but we know that the less sedation yeah. we use, the more yeah. we mobilize patients, yeah. the more families involved, all the outcomes get better. And when the outcomes get better, the costs decrease. Yes. But someone's got to be in there advocating for that. And thank goodness yeah. it's you. And I've gotten a little pushback from uh, the, uh, you know, the New England Journal article six months ago on, on, on the, the team you know, study helping. And of course, uh, Wes Eli has done an ex- excellent, was that in your podcast? Yes, it was. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. And you might reference that. But the big difference is the control group in that. Uh, group, we're getting eight minutes of exercise. Well, I'll tell you, that is uh, eight minutes of exercise more than most ICU patients are getting each day in this country. And then the other big thing is they didn't change sedation at all. The sedation administration was essentially the same in both arms. And to be honest, I don't see people walking very much uh, on benzos or propofol IV. So, uh, <laughs> or rather the, negative three. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, uh, but uh, people who haven't looked at the article in some detail, and in fact, I think the article is actually referenced in, in up to date 
And, and I was very discouraged that they actually, you know, without ha having a discussion on it. But, uh, you know, look, uh, I can almost get you an article that will support or disagree with anything you want. We're not looking at one article. Look, we're looking at the weight of evidence. And when we look at such a poor job as we're relatively doing in ICU, and I say this uh, criticizing myself uh, 100%, we have a requirement and an obligation to do much better. Now, we can't influence much of what we did yesterday. That's kind of in the rearview mirror, but we can work on today and we can dramatically work on tomorrow. And given that the average American has about nine and a half hospitalizations during the lifetime, almost all of us and our families are going to end up in the ICU at some time. And when you look at the cognitive impairment that results from a significant stay, forget about all the rest of the stuff, which is terrible, but just look, if you're a doctor, an engineer, and a lawyer, an accountant, uh, you know, whatever you are, the odds are you may well not be coming back to work uh, after that. And if our treatment, our practice, is going to make that difference. I, th I think we have an absolute obligation. And I think we also have an obligation to discuss this uh, with, with patients and families. Uh, you know, uh, you can, they can say, well, the last time they were in the ICU, they were asleep for a month. Well, yeah, uh, th that is an option. But let me tell you about all the downsides of that. And so I think we, you know, I, I, I think, and I mean, I hate to say it, but I, I, I think this is an area, you know, of potential litigation in the future as, uh, you know, uh, as patients come out. Uh, like if I'm, you know, uh, a 30 year old doctor who gets septic and, you know, uh, my mind is destroyed, I'm going to be wanting to look somewhere for something. And, and uh, you know, that should not be. Uh, the driving force, what should be, and I think what is the driving force is we all want to do the best job. And I am absolutely certain that every clinician who comes to work every morning wants to do the best job possible. But, you know, as part of doing the best job possible, you have to make sure you're aware of the best practices. You know, it's not just uh, like, uh, you know, I, I would like to, you know, uh, run a three hour marathon. Well, if I'm going to do that, I need to start training. I need to start dieting. I, I can't be that. I just like to run it. So you have to make yourself aware. And I think, you know, uh, listening to podcasts like yours, which people can do driving back and forth to work. And there's lots of other excellent podcasts out there. I mean, this will, if this doesn't, uh, sort of disturb your comfort zone, you know, it's, it's, it's a little surprising because you will find uh, there are, the way we're doing business today is unequivocally not the best way. And there I are better ways out. Practicing evidence-based medicine if what we're doing goes against the evidence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's been a really uncomfortable irony to hear things and people talking about the evidence when um we're just we've we're practicing fear-based medicine we're practicing normal medicine 
but well, not the problem, the problem though, Kaylee, is very simple in my mind. First of all, there is incredible complacency. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we are just, you know, we're convincing ourselves every day we're really doing a good job and we are doing some things magnificently. We're slipping in like aortic valves through your femoral vessel and sending you home that night. And we were now taking clots out of your brain. We're doing some things magnificently, yeah. but we're certainly not doing everything uh, magnificently. The other problem is that there's almost no discussion among uh, medical students, uh, among the university uh, faculty, there's almost no awareness of this. So basically, uh, you know, students are coming out, they're essentially practicing uh, ICU medicine the way we did one, two, and three generations earlier. And uh, this is a problem. And then, as I stated earlier, even when we know fantastic life-saving interventions like proning and protective ventilation, it's an operation less than 50% of the time. Now, how could you honestly today have a patient die in your ICU from ARDS and not have offered lung protective ventilation or proning? I mean, you know, you really haven't done uh, everything that's available to you. And I don't know uh, you know, of any particular reason why you could say, well, gee, I didn't do this because, and I can guarantee you that, uh, I mean, I was just listening to a podcast recently from the university of San Diego. There was a professor of infectious disease, uh, got sick, uh, down there and they horribly septic and they intro- they gave him some kind of a genetically modified bacteria that the defense forces were using down in San Diego. Well, realistically, what do you think the chances of a guy walking in from the street and getting that would be? And I I, I think it's a little bit the same with clinicians. I, I think if your spouse had ARDS, I pretty much guarantee you uh, that spouse would be getting prone to lung protective ventilation. And I think that we have to have the same ownership for all of these uh, patients. I will briefly end up with uh, my sister's experience. And uh, so about 15 years ago, I diagnosed her breast cancer by examining her sore shoulder. We were going to play golf the next morning. She had a lymph node under her shoulder. So the golf had to be canceled. And I I had her in the university hospital at two o'clock that afternoon in Dublin. And she got treated and did okay. And then about three years later, uh, she's seen two golf balls. And I told her, hit the big one. And (laughs) so anyway, uh, she turned out to have a cerebral metastasis. And uh, I, with her, sat across the table from the top neurosurgeon in Ireland. And he didn't use these words, but he essentially told her, uh, you know, to go home and die. And man, he didn't use those words. I mean, he was saying, you know, this is really terrible. And it turns out that her son was a very successful uh, supporter of Cromwell Hospital in London. She went over there, was hospitalized for two days, had the met removed, uh, lived another five years when she saw her third son married and two more grandkids born. And every day she said, Every day she woke up was an incredibly special day uh, because she was in extra innings. 
And in fact, when she was dying, I'm sitting by her bed. She was in hospice and holding her hand and we're kind of reminiscing. And then she was telling me uh, about uh, the best doctor that she had ever seen. And I was kind of eagerly awaiting this. Uh, and she says, well, he was the Nigerian hospice doctor who was just treating her. And I didn't have the courage to ask her, well, you know, was the like the neurosurgeon who removed your brain med or, or myself? Were we on the list? But <laughs> the bottom line is that, you know, here's the impact that uh, you sort of think like just, you know, a routine doctor uh, is having on people. And that's the incredible privilege that I was talking about earlier. And I think if we view everyone, uh, you know, as being special and kind of put ourselves a little bit in, in their shoes and advocate for them. I saw a patient about a month ago and uh, he had horrible lung disease and he was 61. And I said, you know, I think he, uh, I think he needs a lung transplant. And they said, ah, oh, no, no, he, he, he won't do that, he won't do that. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. We all impact people in different ways. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be doing a brain transplant or someone to make all the difference. It can be something very simple. And, you know, in the ICU, we see uh, the horrific damage that is being done. And, you know, we don't have to do everything absolutely perfectly. But I think, uh, you know, I, I would see right now as the top three things would be essentially almost no sedation for anyone, uh, get some levels of mobility going, you know, literally in the first 24 hours and as much as possible, and then have the family involved. You know, the family could be there pushing the IV, uh, you know, trap or whatever. And so I really think if we did those, uh, that would be a great start. And it would probably, you know, eliminate maybe 50% of the damage that we're doing. And if you believe like the up-to-date data that we have 4.8 million survivors leaving the ICU every year, I mean, that is a horrific number of people uh, that we are injuring. So, you know, uh, by doing relatively small things in our ICU, we could make a dramatic difference. And I think that 
I, I would sort of challenge uh, every clinician, uh, particularly anyone who's listening to this, to first of all, listen to more of your podcast because it will absolutely, uh, you know, affirm and consolidate, you know, that, that this is really incredibly important. But uh, when you're going to write a propofol order or a propofol or a benzodiazepine, I mean, ask yourself, uh, do you understand the impact that this is going to have on this patient? And, uh, you know, yes, maybe the first week or two, uh, you'll have a little struggle with, with the nurses or with someone, but you know, it's going to become routine, much better care. And, you know, I think that, uh, like I said earlier, you know, if we were talking about uh, you know, which movie are we going to see? You know, which Hawaiian island are we going to? You know, not a big deal. But I mean, we're talking about someone's life. We're talking about how they're going to live maybe for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, this is critical. And uh, we need to understand. And the data out there is absolutely compelling. I mean, whether we like it or not, uh, we are not doing a good job. We're not doing the kind of job that I think most of us would ask ourselves when we get up in the morning, you know, do I want to go in and do a so-so job? I, I think all of us think that we're like, we, all of us think we're really super. We, we think we're great. We think we do great work. And, and, you know, sometimes we do, but the data would suggest that we're not probably as good as we think. And I'll tell you, I was at the top of that list for the first 30 years of my life. I'm sending patients out of the ICU, uh, you know, on a gurney thinking, man, you know, I'm really a great doc. And, I'm a and hero. I wasn't saying that to anyone else. I was just saying it to myself. But then as I realized, you know, no, I'm actually not that great. I mean, these patients are going out. Uh, some of them to live a horrific life. And when you read, you know, uh, Wes Eli's book, and when you listen to your, uh, you know, podcasts, uh, if these don't, uh, you know, give you a little pause to think, you know, am I doing the best I can do? And you have to realize that, you know, the odds are that you may well end up as a patient in the ICU, your family, your, your, your parents, your grandparents. I mean, you know, uh, this is a real problem. There's none of us getting out of here sort of probably without spending a lot of time in the ICU. And the question is, how do you want to be after you leave the ICU? And, you know, I think everyone has answered that question for themselves, but you also... I mean, have to avail yourself of the educational experiences. Uh, Dr. Eli has a fabulous uh, repository, uh, icudelirium.org. You can actually check that that's the address, but I think it is. And everything you ever wanted to know about better ICU care is in there. And I know you have been incredibly helpful in bringing our nurses uh, up to speed with your uh, your webinars and your lectures. And, you know, uh, the nurses, uh, as you well know, but uh, not all doctors would necessarily admit, uh, the nurses are really uh, the people doing the work in the ICU. They are dealing with all the challenges. They're dealing with uh, family issues. And, you know, if you don't have them 
you know, totally buying into this program, it's going to be more difficult. And the easiest way to get them to buy in is to actually do it on a couple of patients, let them see that this works and then a couple more. And suddenly you, you are like our ICU nurses in Roseville who say, you know, we don't sedate patients here. And to me, that is you, you, you have arrived. That is, that is. And I love that you came back from that awakened walk in ICU and you just started doing it with your patients. Yes. You started ringing the bells, trying to bring a systematic change, but you focus on that one shift and those patients that you could impact during that shift. And that set off this domino effect. And I just came in and brought the tools, more information, tried to make it a disseminate to disseminate it throughout the entire team. But having a leader that believed in it and then just doing it, just starting, just taking that step of faith to not even start sedation and then seeing what happens. It's amazing listening to podcast listeners who haven't even brought their teams in for consulting or done any of this. They are alone, a one lone nurse, one lone RT, making these little choices, little steps, applying the evidence and whatever power they can. Mm -hmm. They are saving lives. They are making a difference. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by the magnitude of change that needs to happen, but it's the boots on the ground, those daily choices, each shift with each patient that is making the biggest difference. And, you know, I think the biggest thing to look at is that you are probably not going to change world practice. Well, you actually might through your podcast, but I'm not going to change world practice in, in you know, a, in the next week or two or anything else. But I am going to make an incredible difference for those patients that I'm working with. And, you know, to be honest, that's really all we're asking from most clinicians is for you to do the best job with the patients that you have the privilege of working with. Uh, you know, I, I can't cure hunger in Africa and I can't do a million. Uh, Bill Gates has taken care of malaria and other, but I can make a dramatic difference in the patients I work with. And so can essentially most other, uh, you know, clinicians. And, uh, you know, you, you, you go to some of, you know, where's Eli's, uh, uh, you know, educational process there. You know, this is, this is something we can do and must do. And the privilege of doing what we do requires us to do it better. Dr. Murphy, you are a true ICU revolutionist. Thank you so much for everything that you've done and are doing. Um, thank you for supporting this movement and leading it where you're at. We have a lot more to learn from you. Keep us posted on any data you come up with, all yeah. the tips and tricks of bringing this change. Congratulations on your success and we'll be in touch. And, you know, I would want to say that I'm working with great physician colleagues and fantastic nurse colleagues uh, who all they need is a little direction and a little understanding. And, and you know, they're great soldiers. So thank you. That's what, I, that's what I've experienced, too. I've had years ago, a medical director said, well, you, we can't get our nurses to do that. But what I am experiencing is that you really can. They deserve the education, support, guidance, collaboration to make it happen. But you give them those tools and they're the ones that fly with it. And I've met your nurses and I've heard how excited they are about this and how well they're doing. And it's been an honor and privilege to 
be involved in that process. And I believe in nurses. I believe in our clinicians. I think you're spot on that we want to do the best job and that we are willing to do it. So thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for everything. And, uh, you know, we're going, we're going to succeed here. It's going to take a little time. I think, I, I really think that in five years, and uh, this is going to be the way uh, ICU care is delivered. I really, because, you know, the what we're doing right now is so far from where I think most people would really want to be. And, you know, if you start exposing people to better ways, they, they're going to they're going to do not everyone, but the majority. That's all we want. The majority. Beautiful. And spoiler alert, but stay tuned. SCCM is coming out with new guidelines coming up. Lovely. <laughs> as much as I can say. Thank Thanks you so much. very much. Thank you again. consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.